grow up as a member of the Church of the Nazarene. I grew up on a mission field. My parents were missionaries. But I didn't know really anything about the Church of the Nazarene until I came to college here. My parents served with an organization called World Gospel Mission, which ultimately is a mission that both Christine and I served with. It's an interdenominational holiness mission, so I was familiar with uh, the holiness churches in general, but not the Church of the Nazarene specifically. My parents were actually members of the Methodist Church. My dad had pastored in Iowa for a while before he went to the field in India. And I knew that even back then, and this was in the 1960s, he was not happy with the direction that the Methodist Church was taking. And so he told me, you have to live your own life, you have to decide what church you want to be a part of and um, be loyal to. Through a variety of reasons, I don't need to go in tonight, I came here to Bethany Nazarene College, as it was called then, and that's where I met Chris. And going through college here, being a part of Nazarene activities in the college, I thought, them yeah, this is a good church to be a part of. And so it, we, uh, or I joined the church at that point. Christine was already a member of the Church of the Nazarene from Missouri. Now, the Lord used those things to work out down the road, which I'll get to in a little bit later. After finishing here at college, I went on to seminary, but again, not Nazarene seminary. I went to a seminary in Kentucky called Asbury Theological Seminary, which is a holiness school again, with deep roots in the holiness movement. And after leaving the seminary, then I looked for a church to pastor, and a church opened for me in northern Illinois just outside the city of Rockford, and we might say just outside a little place called Chicago. They used to have a jingle on the TV and radio when we were out there. Just outside Chicago, there's a place called Illinois. <laughs> Chicago runs everything in that part of the country. And from there, then, the Lord took us to India. A lot of people said, you can't go to India. India is a country that's closed to missionaries. They're not allowing foreign missionaries to come in anymore. And that was largely true. Ever since independence in 1947, India had been slowly restricting, restricting, restricting access to new missionaries coming in. Those that had already been there could continue on, but no, very few new ones could come in. And so people said to us, well, you can't go. They'll never open the doors for you. Well, the Lord opened the doors. And we were able to go in and serve in India. How did he do that? Because I was born in India. So I had a background in India. I could show that I was born there. And the government would give preference to people who had an India connection like that. And so in mid-1970s, we were able to go to India and serve there. We served in India for more than 30 years. 
We worked in a Bible school that World Gospel Mission had started. Um, what now? It's been 85 years now. Yeah. This is 80, this year, this month is 85 years since the school started. The school was, has been a training school for missionaries, for pastors, Christian workers, all kinds of ministries for various Christian churches in India. And my wife and I had then the opportunity for over 30 years of being in that situation. And it's a kind of a situation where there are not a lot of hair-raising stories to tell. I mean, we get our routines of going to class, teaching, administration. Who loves administration? Yeah, I didn't think I'd see many hands. Uh, our job was to be there preparing others. They're the ones who are going to do the ministry in India. We did have some experiences while we were there. One of the more frightening experiences we had was not too many years after we had arrived. Our children, both our children, son and daughter, were still pretty small, uh, pretty young. And it was about this time of the year, November. We were planning to go to the big city of Bangalore, which was 50, 55 miles away, to do our Christmas shopping, pick up supplies, because there weren't a lot of supplies that we could get easily in our local market other than fresh fruits and vegetables. But if we want canned goods, box goods, things like that, we had to go into the city of Bangalore. Plus, we wanted to pick up some gifts for the children to have for Christmas. And we didn't think there would be any problem. We'd done this many times. Drive in, spend the day, pick up stuff what we need, drive back again in the evening. Well, there had just been some political upheavals in the country. The Prime Minister, you may remember the name of Indira Gandhi, had just been elected out of power, and the opposition decided to put her in jail. Not a smart move, because it just backfired terribly on the opposition. All of Indira Gandhi's supporters rose up and were irate that their leader would have been thrown into jail. We knew very little of what had gone on. We didn't have TV at that point. We had a radio, but uh, didn't get a lot of news on it. We heard that there was something going on, but we didn't think it would interfere. And so we headed off in the morning and went into Bangalore. And we noticed that the streets, the roads were strangely quiet. There weren't a lot of people out. Even in the city of Bangalore, streets were deserted. Not a lot was going on. We went to one of the stores that we usually go to to do our grocery shopping. And the storekeepers were telling us, no, 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 you, you can't stay here. You need to go home. Go home quickly. Don't stay around. And we began to sense that there probably it was a smart thing to do. So we finished what little shopping we wanted to, had to get done and immediately then started home. 
And we tried to go down one road going home, and that road was blocked. So we decided, well, let's we know a back road we can take around going around another way. And there were crowds on that road. Ultimately, there were five different places that we were stopped on that road. In one place, um, we were surrounded by a group of people, young people, mostly college-age young men for the most part, with sticks, and they were wanting to beat on the car, and the children were in the back seat. What's happening? What's happening? Get us out of here. Get us out of here. We kind of used them as a, as a can I say, a shield. So says, Look, you're, you're upsetting the children. Won't you let us get out? We don't have anything to do with this. We, we just want to get home. Finally, there were, there were two village men that came up and said, um, we'll get you out of here if you'll give us a ride down so many miles down the road. Do we take up that offer or not? Strangers, we hadn't a clue who they were, never seen them before in our lives. Do we pick up strangers? What, what do they do after they get in the car? But they assured us, no, we, we, we can help get the people out of the way, and we know where we're going, we'll, we'll uh, get out at a certain place. And so with some fear and trepidation, we accepted the offer, we let them get in the car, and they guided us through, took us some, through some back roads, and finally got stopped with big cast iron sewer pipes put across the road to keep anything from going through. And they got out of the car and convinced the people that were there, just pull them a little side. These people don't have anything to do with the upheavals that are going on. They're, they're foreigners. And they did get us through that last barrier and got us on our way home. That was probably the most frightening experience that we'd ever had, especially when you've got little kids with you and you obviously want to do everything you can to protect kids. But the Lord kept us safe the whole time we were in India. As I said, most of our experience was in a Bible school where we didn't have the opportunity of being out a whole lot. Our students were required to go out every weekend as long as they were in the school year, they had some practical Christian ministry assignment every weekend, out in a village or a small church nearby, where they had some kind of organized ministry that they had to do. Because after all, preparing for ministry isn't just a matter of filling the head, is it? It's a matter of practicing what you learn, putting, it in, putting feet to it. And so we tried not to go out with the students. In fact, they often said, we don't want you to come with us. Because if foreigners went with the students in their practical ministry, the villagers that they were going to would think, oh, the white sahibs have come to check on them to make sure they're doing their job so they can get paid. So we'll listen to them so they can get paid but we don't have to pay attention. They knew they came from the Bible school. 
And we didn't want to distract them from actually doing ministry and not to be a hindrance to them. But one time, some of the students said to me, they're having a special ceremony out in a village. I'd never been to that village. It was way out, off the beaten track. I'm not sure I could ever get there again. But we went out late one night. They were having a firewalking ceremony that night where they were invoking the Hindu gods to come and help them to do things. And they actually had a bed of coals, and I watched men walking across that bed of coals in their bare feet. The power of Satan is there. It is a real power. It is not all powerful by any means, but the power of Satan is there. And we do want to pray for those who are sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel, that they would know the power of God to overcome that kind of power. As I said, we basically had backseat in ministry there. Those that we were training were the ones that were in ministry. They're the ones that have done ministry. And over the years, as I said at the beginning, God, uh, the country of India has slowly closed the door to foreign missions. In fact, I don't know of hardly any foreigners that are there today from, that come from outside of India. But over the years, going back into the 50s and the 60s even, God has raised up Indian men and women to start Indian missionary organizations and they are going as missionaries cross-culturally throughout India, supported by Indian funds, Indian churches, some of them abroad, like here in the States. Some of them get funds even from non-Indian churches abroad. But a lot of them are supported even by Indian churches within the country. One of our students was a young man by the name of Edison, who came from the state of Gujarat. He wasn't a Patel. The Patels own the motels here in the States, right? If you travel much. But he wasn't a Patel. He just came from the state of Gujarat. He came from a Christian background. His other name was Edison, but he was no Thomas Edison. He struggled in school. Part of it was because he didn't know English very well. Since our students come from all over India, speaking many different languages, we'd have 13, 14 different languages represented among the students, we used English as a common language because nearly all of them learned English in school. How many of you learned Spanish when you were in school? Okay, could you listen to Spanish lectures and understand what they're saying? Huh? No. <laughs> it's kind of the same way. You can learn language in school and even get a passing grade in it, but to sit and learn in it, that's eh, another story. And some of our students really struggled with that. Some of them picked up English really easily. Some came with good English, but Edison didn't. He struggled. He came to me at the end of one semester and knew he wasn't doing very well and pleaded with me, 
can't you give me a decent F? Now, I'm not sure what a decent F was from a bad F, but he wanted a decent F to get through. But even though he didn't shine in his classes, he knew God had called him into ministry. He made it through four years somehow. I don't know how he made it through four years. But even while he was in school, he sought for ways to reach out and touch other people. He would go to our local town. Now, he was from North India, so he knew the language that the Muslims speak. And in our local town, we had a large number of Muslims. They were largely shopkeepers, shop owners. And he would go to them after school, on Saturdays, on Sundays, sometimes part of his weekend ministry. And he worked to share the gospel with them. I don't know of any of them that ever became a Christian because of his ministry, but he sought to be faithful to the call God gave him. When he left school, he then went to Kashmir in the very north of India, up in the Himalaya Mountains, in the Vale of Kashmir, where for now probably 30, 40 years, he has been carrying on a ministry among the Muslims in Kashmir. He has had fruit there. He has had success, not widely known. He's been sent and supported by an Indian missionary organization. It's just one example of those who go out to share the gospel with their own people, but have to learn a new language sometimes, not English in this case, have to learn new customs, be a part of a new society, different type of people. As I said, we went to India with World Gospel Mission. They were the ones that were operating the Bible school. In the 1980s, there was a missionary couple that came to visit our Bible school. I don't know if you ever had them here in your church. Paula and Bernal Greer. Okay. Godly people. Been in India for almost 50 years by the time they retired. He had been asked by the Church of the Nazarene to come to South India and to open up work for the Church of the Nazarene in South India. He had come to the Bible school several times over the years, sometimes as a special speaker, because he was a good speaker, a good preacher. And so he made contact with us and said, um, we'd like to come and spend a few days with you and see what the options are about starting the work for the Church of the Nazarene in South India. So they were very welcome to come. The result was that out of their coming to South India, there are now, I don't know, I haven't seen the latest statistics, but there are probably four, five, six districts that have sprung up for the Church of the Nazarene in South India. Some of them, the results of the work that our mission, World Gospel Mission, had done in the villages right around the Bible school. Village churches that didn't know who they ought to belong to. 
They didn't have any connection. They had been started as groups of fellowship, fellowships of Christians, and they voted to join as a district in the Church of the Nazarene. I was asked to serve with some of those churches. They formed an organization called the India Church of the Nazarene as not a breakaway church, but a registered body in order to hold the property, to be recognized by the government, to receive foreign funds. And for a few years, I was a president of that organization. At the same time that the Greers came, we were facing financial issues at the Bible school. And we talked with the Greers, do you think the Church of the Nazarene would be interested in joining and being a partner in the Bible school? After all, for many years, even before we had arrived, the Church of the Nazarene had been sending pastors or young people training to be pastors to the school. We had trained some of their district superintendents. And so they, the Greers presented it to their uh, superiors, went all the way up to the general board of the Church of the Nazarene. We had Dr. William Greathouse who came and visited the school. Godly man, enjoyed having him in our home. And the result was that the Church of the Nazarene officially voted to join and become a part, a partner in the work of the South Indian Biblical Seminary. And so God took someone who had grown up in India, came to the States to join the Church of the Nazarene to help bring the Church of the Nazarene into the work that he had grown up in. We never wondered or we never knew what was coming when all of that started happening many years ago, but God worked things out for his glory and for the extending of his kingdom in India. And after we'd been in India for 30 years, we were doing the same old thing, the same old thing, the same old way, teaching, administration. We were getting, as Chris likes to put it, institutionalized. And we were feeling maybe this isn't what the Lord has for us. We began asking, God, Lord, do you have something that you want us else to be involved in, something else that you want us to be a part of. And at the same time, our mission, World Gospel Mission, was putting out a challenge. People who had been in some ministry for a while, would they be willing to work somewhere else? And so we said, yeah, we'll do that. We need to get out of our comfort zone. We need to get out of what we have just been staying in for so long. And so we said to the mission, we feel the Lord is closing a door for us here. There were a variety of reasons for that. Part of it was I was too much in administration and I felt that that needed to be done by an Indian. Indians needed to take ownership totally of the school the running of the school, the administration of the school. And as long as I was there, I was going to get stuck in a position, and I didn't want that to be there. And so the mission said, okay, we've got three options. You can come to the U.S., 
to work among the Native Americans in the US. You can go to Uganda to work in Africa, or you can go to Ukraine. Three U's they gave us. And we were in contact with all three. We didn't have a specific leading to go to any one of them. But as we talked with the leaders of the different fields, we just didn't feel that the US was the right fit for us. There wasn't a, the right place that we could use our gifts, our abilities, our talents in. We talked with leaders in Uganda and they could have used us, but at that point, again, we did not feel that that was the right door opening for us. And so we said okay to Ukraine. In 2007, when we came back on furlough, we had already decided that was the end of our ministry in India. And so we stopped off in Ukraine on our way and spent a few days looking at the types of ministries that our mission was involved in in Ukraine. Several years earlier, they had started work in the very south of Ukraine, one of their works, one of their ministries, in the city of Berdyansk, just off the Black Sea. Our mission leader at that time, a man by the name of Ernie, Ernie Smith, had seen an old school that had been closed and they'd opened a new building across the street. The old building was just sitting there, empty. Two-story building, a lot of space in it, but a lot of rundown. And Ernie had a vision for this building, to make it a place of ministry, what became known as the home of hope. Over the years, he was able to get possession of the building, didn't cost a whole lot because they were just going to tear it down ultimately anyway. And over the years, a variety of work and witness teams, our other work teams in our mission came and worked on that building. They built three apartments in it. They built a worship center. They put a bookstore in it, a youth center classrooms where English was taught as a second language, variety of ministries, and ultimately a bigger sanctuary was built. It was a U-shape, and into the U, they built a sanctuary. And that's where we ended up, in the city of Berdyansk, where we worked with a pastor. I did Bible study with some of the women in the church. Chris went to an orphanage every week, going to an orphanage, sharing with the children, doing activities, being involved with them, just loving on them, showing them someone cares about them. A lot of them were not true orphans. A lot of them were children whose parents were in prison because of a variety of offenses against the laws. And so they didn't have homes that they really could go back to. Nobody could take care of them. They had parents, but parents were not able to take care of them. Others were orphans. Some of them had only one parent. But again, that parent may be in a 
prison. And so she had an opportunity of working with children for a number of years in the orphanages. I worked as a treasurer on the field. We got the building finished, and it has been a ministry center. Unfortunately, the area where Berdyansk is located was in the area that the Soviets have taken over, the Russians. You may have heard a great deal on the news about the city of Mariupol. That was a major city just 50 miles to the east of us. We used to go there for shopping, sometimes not a whole lot because we could get most of our shopping done locally, but they had some nice big department stores that we liked to go to. And we would go through Mariupol on our way to uh, airport, again, that's no longer in existence. But the Russians have flattened Mariupol. They have not flattened the city of Berdyansk. We think partly because the elected leaders in the city were pro-Soviet to start with, and they made a deal with the Soviets, we think, that they would open the doors and let them come in and save the city from being destroyed, which saved a lot of people's lives, no doubt. But what is going to be the result of this, we don't know. At the, we did hear at the beginning when the conflict started in the south that a number of churches were coming in and using the Home of Hope as a place of ministry, a place to worship, because they had no other place to go. Different churches in the area were coming in and using it. The last report we've heard is that they have gone elsewhere, and it's only the church that we were working with, a church called Bethel Church, that is still meeting in that home of hope. In the city of Kherson, which is just a little bit further west from us, maybe 100 miles west, it's a city that was the first city to be captured by the Russians and now is the first major city in the south to be retaken by the Ukrainians and forced the Russian soldiers out. I heard recently that the churches there are growing. This is what opposition to, the, to people will res often result in. It's one reason why the churches began in the 1990s in Ukraine. When Ukraine became independent from Russia, became an independent country, allowed outsiders to come in to share the gospel, a lot of organizations came in and found that groups of people in, Russia, in Ukraine were open to the gospel. There was a freedom to share. They were out from under the yoke of communism and oppression, and they were open to hearing what God had to say to them, and churches were opening. There was revival taking place. Our church, Bethel, started at that time. Another church just down the road from us in a city called Primorsk started at that time. Now, as Ukraine has gone 20 years, 25 years, since that time. Before the conflict with Russia started, Ukraine was becoming more prosperous. People were becoming more prosperous, getting settled back into their old ways of doing things. 
there was more and more of a complacency of, to listening to the gospel. Churches were not growing like they used to. It was harder and harder to get a hold of people, to get them to come to church, to hear the gospel. But now that things have changed again, now that there is difficulty, upset, turmoil, not that we want this to happen, but God can use this to open people's minds, their hearts, to what is spiritual truth, to what is eternally important. And I would ask you to pray for the churches in Ukraine, especially in the south and in the very east, the areas that Russia has annexed, as they call it. They have voted to become part of Russia. Pray that the churches in these areas will stand true to the gospel, that they will continue to proclaim the gospel, they will hear what God is saying to them, and that God will use these difficult times to bring people into the kingdom, to help them to become a part of his family. We're familiar with the fact that in Russia and Ukraine there is what is often called the Orthodox Church, a very ancient church, but it's a church that doesn't offer a lot of hope to the people. Jesus offers hope. Pray for the churches in Ukraine as they go through these difficult days. We know churches in the north and in the west are trying to minister in these situations. A lot of them are facing financial issues. The church that we were part of, Bethel Church, they're just now heading into winter, and winter can be brutal. One time we were traveling from our city to the airport city of Donetsk by a little minibus, they call them, mashrutkas. And it was so cold, we put a blanket, a fleece around us in the bus to keep cold, and the edge of it was against the window. And when we got to the destination, I had to peel it off the window. It had stuck to the window. It gets cold. Well, the pastor I heard recently report is able to heat the church twice a week the church building, and on Sunday put a little bit of heat. They have no gas. Russia's cut off the gas. They collect firewood. They've converted the boiler that makes hot water to heat the radiators to wood burning, and they have to go out and scrounge to find wood to burn. It's very expensive. It's very difficult. Situation is not a very pleasant situation from a comfort point of view. But we, again, I would ask, continue to pray for the churches in Ukraine, that they would be God's instrument of peace and healing and hope during this time. Do you have questions that you have that I might be able to answer, either about India or Ukraine? I'm not promising I can answer them, but if you do, I'll try to answer them. Did I itch any scratches somewhere or start an itch that you want to know more about?
in southern Ukraine or generally? Well, I really don't know. We don't get a lot of news from our friends in Berdyansk since that area is controlled by the Russians. They have to be careful what they say on internet. Um, and so we don't really know. Uh, overall, it doesn't look too good because, as you probably heard, Russia has, is destroying a lot of the infrastructure, electricity. They have taken control of the biggest nuclear power plant. Um, and as I said, it's heading into winter. It's cold. Uh, it's going to be difficult fighting through a winter, living through a winter, surviving a winter, especially in the areas that have been destroyed. No, this is not Nazarene work. Um, there was a, a small Nazarene church in our town, but we never got to know it very well. It was very small. Um, yeah, and there were Nazarenes elsewhere in, for example, Kiev in the capital city and in the west but for the most part, um, at, when we were there, we left well, 10 years ago now, uh, we weren't in situations where we had a lot of contact with them and didn't visit with them a great deal. Our local church at one time did look at the possibility of maybe joining the Church of the Nazarene, but things didn't work out. And I don't need to go into the reasons for it all. But they are a holiness church. Yes, ma'am. In Ukraine? Yes. Um, in, in, the, uh, well, in where? Yeah. Uh, with school children, I don't really know a great deal other than what I see on the news and what I surmise from hearing what I hear on the news. Um, obviously, especially in the areas that Russia has occupied, they have destroyed a lot of buildings, which includes oftentimes school buildings. Um, yeah, they took a lot of the children to Russia, took them from their parents, and forcibly have taken them to Russia. Um, the area where the Russians have occupied in eastern and southern Ukraine have always had a lot of Russian-speaking people. Ever since Stalin and Lenin forced all of these areas into what was called a USSR, United Socialist Soviet Republics. 
Ukraine was a part of that system and being a part of or adjoining Russia, uh, it was obviously very easy for people to go back and forth. Stalin wanted Ukraine because he wanted the wheat and the crops of Ukraine to feed Russia in the 30s during the Great Depression and the famines. And because of that, he allowed Russians to come in. And as I say, there was always a very easy border to go back and forth. And so even when we were in Ukraine, a lot of people in that area spoke Russian. That was their mother tongue. They had family in Russia. They would take their vacations in Russia. Russians would come to our town for their vacations. In fact, the population of our city was about a, somewhere around 100,000 people. During the summer, it was about a million. Because it was right on the coast, had a beautiful beach, coastline. The Russians loved coming there for their summer vacation. And a lot of the local people had a little summer cottage out in the country. They would rent their apartment to Russian tourists and move to the country cottage. And they would earn enough in the three months of summer to live on the rest of the year because there was that much demand. So Russians were in and out of our area all the time and close ties, but when it comes to deciding whether they are Ukrainian or Russian, they would say, we are Ukrainian. We have chosen to be in Ukraine, we have lived in Ukraine, we have raised our children in Ukraine, we are Ukrainian. And Russia is trying to change that by taking the children back to Russia and raising them as Russians. So when, if they do come back to their parents, they will come back with, oh, things are so good in Russia. Not that they are, but I think that's what Russia is hoping to do. Um, I would assume that Nazarene Compassionate Ministries is working in Ukraine and is trying to help where they can. Uh, obviously, it's very difficult to get into these areas that Russia has annexed. They control it. They control entry and exit. And so, whatever organization, it's very difficult to get in and do any kind of even relief, compassionate ministry there. And that's what makes it so hard. Yes, sir. What about Russia itself? Have you done work over in Russia? Our mission never did, no. We only were in Russia, uh, sorry, in Ukraine. Um, there are Nazarene churches in Russia. They have a district at least. Um, Russia, ever since Putin has come to power, has been putting the squeeze on Christian ministries. So again, just like in Ukraine, when the Soviet Union fell apart, 
other organizations like Church of the Nazarene was able to get into Russia and did a lot of work there. But that is, and of course now that it's, it's going on its own, but it's very difficult for foreigners to get in and to be a part of that. They have to maintain themselves. We know of one family, they're a Baptist family from North Carolina? North Carolina. That they had lived in Russia and were missionaries, Baptist missionaries in Russia. By the time we got to Ukraine, they had already been forced out of Russia and were now in Ukraine. But they, they speak fluent Russian. In fact, the kids have all been raised there. They hardly know English. They're four kids. And the parents have learned Ukrainian as well, the Ukrainian language. They are in Kherson, this city that has just been liberated by the Ukrainian army. And um, we have not heard recently, but they were having a lot of trouble even in Kherson. But ministries even in Russia are not easy. Uh, Putin is going, he wants to go back to the old authoritarian, obviously, hands down, you know, hands on control. We are in charge, we don't want outsiders. Um, and so it's difficult for any foreign ministries to work in, in Russia itself. Foreign ministries can come into Ukraine. They are not closed, but it is difficult for, the, for any foreign ministries to get into the areas that Russia is controlling in Ukraine. Well, I do thank you for the opportunity of sharing with you a little bit about India and Ukraine. You don't hear a lot about India anymore. We don't have missionaries coming home on furlough from India anymore, and so we don't have people sharing about the ministry. But the work is going on. One of our former students, let me just close with this, one of our former students, his parents were in one of the little village churches that our mission started, just down the road from the Bible school. He, as a young man, after finished high school, he came to Bible school, trained for the ministry, became a Nazarene pastor in the city of Bangalore. He became a district superintendent. And the last I heard was he had been elected to the general board of the Church of the Nazarene. Work is going on in India and in Ukraine. Thank you for being open to hearing about it, but please continue to pray for it because prayers go behind closed doors and high walls. Thank you.